Hey everyone, this is Sarah with Cornfed Witch here for another episode of Witchy Goodness. This is a beginner podcast, it's a one-on-one podcast, so if you're an advanced practitioner, you may want to look elsewhere for your information, but it may still be good for you to listen. It goes over some foundation information that's important to Wicca and witchcraft. I am I come from a Wicca background, so my perspective is from that particular tradition, although I am hoping to branch out and do a little bit of different episodes on different traditions. So today, I am going to educate you on the wonderful badass that is, or that was, or continues to be, Doreen Valiente. She was a pretty influential, if not the most influential person on witchcraft, other than Gerald Gardner. She did work with him. So, I'm going to go into a biography of her. And this is actually coming from DoreenValiente.com, which is a foundation. I think you should go support them. So, here's a brief biography of her, because she had, she is so great and she there's so much information about her and there was a biography that was published in 2016 called Doreen Valente which is currently on my reading list I'm so excited for so Doreen Edith Dominey was born in Mitcham South London London South London on January 4th 1922 the parents Harry and Edith Harry was a draftsman described by Doreen in later life as a failed architect family moved about the south of England somewhere somewhat during her childhood living at various times in Surrey, Exeter, and Southampton, which is how she was to acquire her characteristic soft West Country accent. She had her first magical experiences at the age of seven, and she recalls playing at, at riding a broomstick up and down the street, behavior that led to her parents' fears that she would be attracted to the occult in later life. How little they could have known. As a teenager, Dory had begun to practice simple magic, once making a poppet to prevent the harassment of her mother by a local woman, an act of magic that worked very well as the woman was subsequently stalked and harassed herself by a blackbird. Damn those birds. Doreen's parents had sent her to a convent school and must have been dismayed when she walked out at the age of 15 and refused to return. Doreen wanted to work in a factory, Again, to the consternation of her parents, but she eventually settled to office work, her typing and language skills being most useful. Sorry, I had to take some coffee there. Perhaps it was her ability with languages that found her working in various places during the war. The matter is rather mysterious as Dory remained tight-lipped throughout her life about her work during this period of terrible turmoil for the world. We understand now, in rather startling light, will be shed on Doreen's wartime activities in the forthcoming biography. At, at this time, the article was written, it was forthcoming, but it's out. It's, out. it's in uh, Doreen Valente, which, by any means, she was certainly in South Wales in 1941, when at the age of 19, Doreen married Jonas, is it Vlachopoulos, a merchant seaman of Greek descent in his 30s. Marriage did not last long, as Duenas was lost at sea. Resume drowned within six months. By 1944, Doreen had met and married another foreigner, Casimiro Valiente, a Spaniard, 
and this time her marriage was to be a longer one, lasting most of the rest of her life. Marrying a foreign national during wartime was a complicated business, and there are documents in the collection that show that Doreen was effectively treated by the British authorities as a Spanish national. Doreen continued her interest in occult matters, describing herself as a student of the Golden Dawn, but fate was to play an important hand when she read an article in Illustrated an illustrated magazine from her local newsagent describing a museum of magic on the Isle of Man. Just where my family's from. She wrote to the prop proprietor, Cecil Williamson, who passed her letter to fellow director of the museum and resident witch, Gerald Gardner. Remember him? Gerald had worked for much of his life in the Far East, but he retired to his native Britain in 1936 and eventually settled in Hampshire, near the New Forest, where, in 1939, he discovered what he believed to be a surviving remnant of something he had read about the books of Margaret Murray and others called the European Witch Cult. Gerald was initiated into the New Forest group, probably by a woman called Defoe, which is Edith Woodward Grimes, and had practiced witchcraft for over a decade when, with the repeal that lasted the 1735 Witchcraft Act in 1951, meaning it was no longer illegal to practice craft. Gerald had begun the court publicity probably as much for his museum as for the craft generally. Doreen's letter elicited a reply from Gerald, and the two met at Defoe's house in Christchurch in the autumn of 1952. It was, a meeting to, it was to be a meeting of monumental importance for modern paganism. Gerald Gardner initiated Doreen into the craft on Midsummer's Eve, 1953. During a trip, during a trip, he was making to lend a ritual sword to the Druids for their solstice ritual at Stonehenge. Doreen always felt her trip to Stonehenge at summer solstice on the day after her initiation was very fitting. Gerald's knowledge of folklore and magic was deep and wide, but specific details of the craft rituals he had received from the new forest coven were rather fragmentary in his memory, and so he had been assembling written rituals from this and other material he found in research. It was not blessed when Doreen spotted the works of Aleister Crowley and Rudyard Kipling among Gerald's Book of Shadows. And in a fit of frustration, he apparently threw the book to her, saying, Can you do any better? She reconstructed the writings, embellished and added to them with poetry of her own, and excited much of what she described as Crowleyanity. And when she had finished it, it seems Gerald realized they now have what he had always wanted, a practical, logical, workable system of magic and religion noted, rooted in the traditions of British spirituality. Neither of them could have known that their work would, in decades to come, Form the core of what would be called, but not by Gerald or Doreen, Wicca, and would spark a mass revival of interest in paganism. Gerald continued the court publicity, and it was this behavior that finally brought Doreen to withdraw from working in a coven with him. This was not before she had produced a document entitled The Proposed Rules for the Craft, no doubt designed to curb his excesses of publicity thinking, uh, I'm sorry, publicity seeking the revealing of craft secrets, and initiations of unsuitable or untried individuals. Gerald claimed the craft already had rules and duly produced them, but Doreen was skeptical that these rules really were as anxious as Gerald claimed. They were never to work in a covenant again, though they did restore their friendship within a couple of years. Doreen had not abandoned the craft, however. She took another of Gerald's coven. 
Ned Grove as her high priest and established her own coven, though she remained below the parapet of publicity, perhaps in deference of her elderly mother's distaste for her daughter's activities. Doreen's mother, Edith, died in 1964, the same year as Gerald Gardner, which also saw Doreen initiated by Roy Bowers or Bowers, Robert Cochran, into a different tradition branch of witchcraft following a chance meeting in Glastonbury. While a fresh wave of freedom and exploration of all things social, sexual, and spiritual washed through the 1960s, witchcraft and paganism saw itself attracting, attracting more attention from the outside than ever before. Those inside, such as Sybil Leake and Alex Sanders, found themselves becoming media personalities while the old guard cringed at the concept. Doreen, pragmatic as ever, probably recognized the growing polarities and my game to find honorable mineral ground never denying her paganism or fearing to speak out in defense of the craft, but she soon found a growing unease when Roy Bowers and his increasingly erratic behavior, which tragically culminated in his death under unfortunate circumstances in the 1960s. Side note, he actually passed away at the age of 33 by suicide. It was very tragic, and I wish he would have been around, but depression sucks. Doreen continued to represent paganism and witchcraft having by now become a published author with her book, Where Witchcraft Lives, ostensibly about Sussex folklore, but packed with additional information about the subject of great interest to anyone and everywhere. The craft survived the onslaught of adverse publicity, and Doreen herself escaped a number of adventures with both the media and the increasing circuits of charlatans, attention seekers, and maybe a few unfortunately misunderstood individuals. Such names as Charles Cardell, Charles Pace, and Raymond Howard cropped up. The latter was part of a group called the Coven of Otho, in which Doreen was also initiated. In 1972, Doreen's husband, Casimiro, passed away. Doreen eventually felt ready to step back into the limelight somewhat. She began writing in earnest and published an ABC of Witchcraft, Natural Magic, and Witchcraft for Tomorrow all of which are now considered authoritative authoritative standard works in the field. Witchcraft for Tomorrow, no doubt I heard a reference to Gerald Gardner's Witchcraft Today, is cited by many as our gateway to the subject and is as much loved as it is respected by many pagans today. Doreen also found time to involve herself with establishing an organization initially called the Pagan Front, which later transformed into the Pagan Federation to fight prejudice against pagans in both the media and society at large. And this pioneering work is considered by many to be the basis of the modern acceptance of paganism as having a dignified and valid place in society. During the 1980s, Doreen embarked on some remarkable research into the roots of the modern craft. While she herself doubted many of Gerald Garner's claims, she was a great supporter and an admirer of him as a person and a leader of him as a person and a leader, and she uncovered evidence that supported his claim to have been initiated into a tradition rather than a notion that had been going around for several years that he made it all up. Doreen's discovery of the real identity of Dorothy Clutterbuck and her logically concluded reasons for Gerald maintaining the anonymity of initiators silenced the critics. Doreen had been living in Brighton with Casimira until he died and was through the Residence Association that unassuming council book Tyson Place or Council Block, Tyson Place, that she met Ron Cookie Cook, who was to become her partner for the rest of his life. He ended in 1977. 
She had now outlived three life partners, and friends knew as the sadness, perhaps weariness, come over her. But she reinvigorated herself by getting involved with a local group called the Center for Pagan Studies, run by an ex-musician and initiated witch, John Bellum Payne, and his wife, Julie, who had tired of the increase in charlatanry surrounding paganism and decided to do it properly, organizing authoritative talks and lectures on the subject of their own, from their own premises. Doreen took a shrine to them and became the patron of the CFPS, as well as making John her final high priest in the craft. Indeed, it was at the Center for Pagan Studies that she gave her last ever talk. Her health began to deteriorate with the onset of pancreatic cancer, the same condition that had taken her mother. Close friends like John and Julie were with her to the end, caring for her in her own flat and later in a nearby nursing home. She retained her mental agility to the end, training John to help her spiritually with her passing and then revealing to him that she had left her magical legacy to him on an enigmatic promise that he was the person she most trusted to do the right thing with it. With it. Doreen passed from the mortal world at 6.55 a.m. on the 1st of September, 1999. John and colleagues from the Center for Pagan Studies officiated at her funeral. And then they give, they actually have the link to the order of service, which is fantastic. And went on to form a charitable trust in her name, to which John donated the entire collection of artifacts, books, letters, photographs, documents, and material which comprised Doreen's excessive legacy. The Doreen Valente Foundation was instrumental in raising funds and approval for a blue plaque to commemorate Doreen's life and achievements, which was unveiled at Tyson Place. Right now, Midsummer's Day 2013, the 60th anniversary of her initiation into the craft by Gerald Gardner, the plaque reads, Doreen Valente, 1922-1999, poet, author, and modern of mother of modern witchcraft. She is fantastic. If you ever want a mentor of the the witches of history, I would pick her because she is a badass. So badass that that she had let me back up. That she was also described as a witch, spy, and friend of royalty. Found this awesome article from wildhunt.org by Claire Dixon. It's on it's on the website. Go ahead and check it out and read her work. So, here's her article. The doors opened on an exi exhibition of artifacts from the Doreen Valente collection this month. But it was a new biography of the UK's most famous witch that caused the biggest stir. Why? The book revealed that Valente had worked at the legendary M6, MI6 spy base Bletchley Park or that's Bletchley Park during the Second World War. MI6 used Bletchley in Buckinghamshire as its code-cracking center and would intercept all manner of German ciphers. The most famous was the Enigma code because it had more than 100, mil 100 million variations. Hazleton states that Valiente had signed the Official Secrets Act and was part of Bletchley's ISOS division, whose job it was to translate intercepted messages. DVF trustee Ashley Mortimer—that's a Doreen Valente fund trustee. Ashley Mortimer said that Hazelton, in his research for the book, had finally confirmed a long-standing suspicion that she was involved with this code cracking. The discovery was an exciting development for DVF and the pagan community in general. Mortimer said, "John and Julie, 
Belham Payne, founders of the foundation, had always believed Dorian was involved in secret work during the war. They'd both speculated that Dorian may have even been at Bletchley Park. So to have this confirmed by Philip was truly thrilling. He added, this aspect of Dorian's life now revealed throws a new perspective on other aspects. Certainly her ability to be secretive and to take her promises seriously, as she plainly did through the Official Secrets Act. Unfortunately, this new chapter in Valiant's story, which Hazleton has now opened, may never be fully told. The work carried out at Bletchley Park was first disclosed in the 70s, but because Valiente signed the Official Secrets Act, she was prohibited from speaking about the nature of the business with the government. For intelligence work, this limitation will usually apply to the remainder of the signatory's lifetime, and furthermore, any information covered by the Act can sometimes be officially classified for up to 100 years. So what do we actually know? According to Heslerton, the ISOS division, which was based at Hut 18 at Bletchley, was part of the effort to counter the Abwehr, or German military intelligence. Abwehr, I'm probably mispronouncing this, my German's quite rusty. Abwehr had spread itself through Europe by sending out spies posing as refugees fleeing the Nazi regime. These spies would then report back as enemy military sites, training regimes, and so on. ISOS worked to intercept these messages, crack ciphers, and track down the spies. Once detected, German spies were given a stark choice. They could become double agents or face execution. Many chose the former, which led to the creation of the highly successful double-cross system. False information was fed back to German, and one very notable success was to convince the Nazis that the Allies, allies would be landing at Kali rather than Normandy on D-Day. These double agents were, went unnoticed by the Germans, and it is estimated that the work of Valiente and her colleagues at Bletchley saved millions of lives, cutting the length of the war by up to four years. Hazleton also claims that Valiente spent a lot of the Second World War traveling between Bletchley and South Wales. He was reportedly gathering information from foreign merchant navy men regarding the Battle of the Atlantic, at the core of which was the Allied blockade of Germany. It was during this time that Valiente met her first husband, Johannes Vlachopoulos, who drowned only six months after they were married in 41. However, Valente, Valiente's role in South Wales was less clear than her role at Bletchley. Hazleton's research has undoubtedly added an important new dimension to Valiente's story, and the pagan community is abuzz with questions. However, as noted earlier, given, given her signing of the Official Secrets Act, we may never know the true extent or the nature of her work during the war. Or at least not for some time, Mortimer said. The research continues, and we are all convinced that there will be further information and other revelations to discover. Dorian Valiente remains an enigma, and seems the more we find out about her, the more we realize how little we know. She's a certified badass. And so, according to Heselton, the Queen Mother, who Valiente to Balmoral, which is the royal family's official summer residence in Scottish Highlands, by private jet in the 1980s to warn her that the government of the time was thinking about outlawing witchcraft again. Witchcraft had been banned in Britain in the 16th century under the reign of Henry VIII and was punishable by death. Notable purges include the North Berwick Witch Trials in East Lothian, Scotland, 1590, and the Pendle Witches Trial in Lancashire in Northern England, 1612. 
However, in 1735, new witchcraft act was passed to reflect the enlightenment values of the times. Being a practitioner was no longer punishable, but belief in witchcraft was. The maximum penalty was one year's imprisonment or a fine, and the act remained statute law until 1951. When Gerald Gardner introduced Wicca into popular culture in 54, witchcraft began to enjoy a resurgence. Therefore, the possibility of a fresh ban must have been alarming. Heseltine was unclear on the exact timing of Dolly and his flight through Balmoral, but he said, My impression is that her meeting with the Queen Mother was sometime in the 80s. Another related rumor cited by Heseltine is that she is that the handheld mirror used by Valiente in her rituals can be seen in the current DVF exhibition, which belonged to the Queen Mother. Valiente reportedly picked it up as a, a jumble cell at a village neighboring Balmoral after the Queen Mother had a clear out. She is said to have got chatting to the Queen Mother at the sale, who confirmed that the mirror was hers. However, there is at present no way of verifying the story. As with this rumor and the bloodshed detail, it would appear that there are many more stories to be told about Valiente. We'll keep reporting them as they continue the surface. He is and was amazing. So now you have a history of one of the, another influential practitioner of witchcraft, Doreen Valente. And now I'll be transitioning into a new segment. Well, I started last week of the spell for the day. So from here forth, I'm actually going to continue to reference my books. But I also want to incorporate more of my own personal practice into this podcast. Because it's one thing to do your research and start off as reading everything. It's good. You should read everything you can get your hands on to find what resonates with you. But I also want to put more of my stuff into it. So, for the spell of the week, it's kind of like a banishing spell. Actually, it is. I may have talked about this before. It was taught to me by... um, or one of my contemporaries. So when someone's bothering you and you want you them to leave you alone, there are several ways to do this. But I found that the most easiest and beginner friendly one is like a freezer spell. So you get a piece of parchment paper, you write their name on it, and then you get a small bottle, you fill it up with water, and you put that piece of paper into the water. You seal it up tight and put it in the freezer. As the water freezes, so does the hard feeling of the person who's troubling you. Now for like more severe things like stalking and stuff like that, there are other things to do, but this is a good starting point. So on to the correspondences of the week. So for the herb, I picked oak because I am currently using it to make a healing oak oil to bring up your, or to, what's the word? Clear up. Yes, to clear up your sinuses. So it's a pretty ancient herb, and it's been used by druids in the past. Pretty magical. It is really good, really good at protecting you against, against health ailments. I cannot speak today. So, I do have some information from wikipedia.com. So, oak is well known for its astringent and antiseptic properties and has been used as a tonic for a long time. Bark can be made into a tea to heal hemorrhoids. When given with chamomile flowers, it eases intermittent fevers. 
It's very useful when there are chronic diarrhea and dysentery problems. A decoction of one ounce of oak bark and one quart water boiled down to a pint and drink in one glass size portions will aid the bowels. This decoction is also used externally as a gargle to help sore throats and as a fomentation. Warm or hot liquids that are applied to the body to ease pain, like poultice, can be injected for leukuria and applied to bleeding gums or hemorrhoids. Acorns can also be peeled and be used as make potions to treat alcoholism, bad breath, and constipation. So it's also good to use as a protection. So it is a it's a powerful symbol of midsummer. So going towards midsummer, you're going to see more oak. Oak is also good for protection. So it's it's said to be protected by the oak when England is said to be protected by the oak when using its timbers to build their ships. It is also used as a boundary for its protective qualities. Acorns placed on windows will ward off lightning and beings that would scare us at night. They also attract luck. Acorns can be born in pockets to ward off storms and to prevent the bearer from getting lost and protect from evil intent. They're also carried as charms for immortality, longevity, fertility, to ward off illness, and preserve youthfulness. Three acorns can be made into a charm to attract youthfulness, attainment, and beauty in life. This charm will be should be found with the maker's hair and blessed every full and dark moon of a year when worn. A leaf worn on the neck and next to the heart will allow the wearer not to be deceived by the world at large. A few leaves in Baffler will cleanse body and spirit. If you kept a falling leaf, it is said that you will not be sick for the winter. If a sick person is in your house, light a fire of oak wood to draw out the illness. Because the oak tree is associated with a male tree or like projective energy, athames and certain male aspect, quote unquote, wands and staves are especially potent when made of its wood. The wood is also used to make religious idols. You can also bury the oak in an acorn and then at night to receive money soon. So going on to the the gem of the week or the crystal of the week. This is coming from Cunningham's Encyclopedia of Crystal Gem and Metal Magic. And I picked Holy Stones. So that's H-O-L-E-Y. Folk names are Hold Stones, Holy Stones, Odin Stones. Serenity is receptive. This element is water. Deities are Odin the great and the great mother powers protection anti-nightmare health psychism eyesight magical ritual lore and the eddas which are the holy myth of north mythology odin transmuted himself into a worm and slipped through a hole in a rock to steal the meat of poetry perhaps because of this myth old stones were known as odin stones on a windswept day i went on a long drive of this out of the city on a point of land jetting out into the pacific ocean Crawling over jagged rocks flecked with sea foam, I reached a fairly isolated beach. I stood on it, huffing, and looked down. There, showing plainly against the brilliant white sand, were dozens of holy stones. I picked one up, thanked the goddess for, his, for this gift, and took it home to place on my altar to represent she, the mother of all creation. Stones with naturally occurring holes produced by erosion, wind, or wave action, sea creatures, and by other means, have long been prized as protective objects. There are numerous folk uses for these stones. They were hung on the bedpost to prevent nightmares. 
In England, holy stones were tied with red ribbon and hung over the bed for the same purpose within recent years. This seems to be a true survival of ancient magic and may still occur today. As a magical protectant, holy stones were worn around the, the neck, placed in the house, or hung from the front door. Hanging one near it where a pet sleeps guards it. To assist the body's healing processes, towards a holy stone to absorb the disease, place the stone in a tub of warm, salted water, and soak in it for several minutes. Repeat once a day for a week. Cleanse the stone after this and repeat as necessary. In England, wise women employed holy stones in healing rituals for children. The wise women rubbed the sick child's body with the stone, magically removing the disease because the stone absorbed it. This curious rite was also performed on adults to maintain their health. Another power resident within holy stones is enhancement in psychism. In a wild and lonely place, preferably by moonlight, hold a holy stone up to one eye. Close the other eye and peer through the stone. You may see visions, ghosts, or non-physical entities. And finally, looking through holy stones in broad daylight, even at home, is said to improve eyesight. So now you have more understanding of holy, homes, holy stones, which I've actually heard them called hagstones. You should totally check them out. They're really cool. And so now we're going on to the tarot card of the week. So last time we did the hermit, and now we're doing the wheel of the year. And this is coming from Ellen Dugan's Witch's Tarot companion book. So this card symbolizes the magic of the four seasons and the energies of the wheel of the year. When this card turns up in a reading, it is a message to work with the energies and the cycles of nature that are currently around you and not against them. This means rest and introspection in the winter, new beginnings, growth and opportunities in the spring, energy excitement, bounty and vibrancy in the summer, and abundance and reminders to prepare, gather, and remember in the autumn. Expect there to be change, as all of life is forever transforming and growing. This card classically represents good luck, opportunity, and, for and a fortu fortuitous event. Keywords, the wheel of the year, celebrating the Sabbaths and Espets, Good luck, working with the magic and energies of each season. Deity associations, Fortuna, Erinrog. Astrological association, Jupiter. Reverse, a period of bad luck. Feeling disconnected from the seasons and rhythms of nature. Seasonal affective disorder, which is winter time blues or SAD. Which sucks. It's a worse form of depression, I think. Alright, so now you have a history of Dormian Valente under your, under your belt. Uh, banishing spell, uh, some information about oak and uh, holy stones, and some information about the Will of Year tarot card. So with that, remember to email me your witchy anecdotes to cornfedwitch at gmail.com. Follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at, at cornfedwitch. Check out my Patreon. And I hope you have a blessed week. Thank you and have a have a pleasant week again. Bye.